we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia. Jane Storey has travelled Australia photographing the country's native bees. He's challenged himself to snap them all. On his travels, James recently spotted the black cloak bee, which previously hasn't been seen in over a century. Here, we talk about the coolest Aussie species of bee and how James captures his groundbreaking images. James, you recently rediscovered the Australian cloaked bee after it hadn't been seen for nearly a century. Tell us a little bit about that bee and how you managed to spot it. Yeah, sure. So um, that bee's really neat, um, particularly because it's the only Australian species in the whole genus, so Farahaleus. Um, and it's one that I really wanted to find going into that field trip, actually. So the field trip was one that goes up the whole East Coast collecting bees. And the reason I wanted to find it is because I've been told by a couple um, of people that it actually hadn't been seen for about 100 years. So obviously that was a challenge for me. Um, but also ongoing next to my like research side, I'm, I have a personal project to try and photograph all of the bee genera in Australia. So if I wanted to photograph that one, I had to find it. Um, and it was just really lucky actually that I did. I, I had one close call before that where I thought that I'd found it. It was actually a related species in another genus. Um, but yeah, once, once I actually, I did catch it, it was just a complete fluke. Like I was, um, walking along this tiny little remnant rainforest in far North Queensland in Atherton. Um, and it had been, you know, pretty terrible weather because this is just when the big floods had happened in, um, Townsville a little bit after that. Um, and I just saw a bee fly and land on a leaf and I quickly swept it, put it in the net and had a look. And I was pretty sure what it was when I saw it, but. I had to go run back to the car, put it in the fridge, then put it under the microscope to find out whether or not I actually had found the cloaked bee. And how did it feel when you realised what it was? It was great, actually. I um, I did let out an involuntary whoop. Um, <laughs> and I, I immediately texted uh, those people that had told me that they thought maybe, maybe it was extinct, maybe not, but they were worried for it, so... Yeah, I was super excited. Then I, I spent the next three days on that high trying to find more. Um, and it did take that long before I found a few males flying around a particular plant. And tell me about this sort of challenge you've set yourself to photograph all of Australia's bees. Where did that sort of start? Yeah, so 
I'm not entirely sure when it started because I think it probably started before I realized it had. And I just, I maybe just wasn't prepared to admit it to myself, you know, because it's quite a challenge and it's probably going to be years and years before I do it. Um, so maybe, maybe it started when I was producing my book, um, Bees of Australia, because obviously I, I had a trip going around Australia trying to collect as many different bees as I could and photographing those. Uh, so I guess it's part and parcel of that. Um, but you know, species like Pharaohyleus or general like Pharaohyleus, I should say, um, I just was never sure that I'd actually find them. You know, if no one's found it in since 1923, why would I? Um, and insanely since then, actually the week before the paper was published, um, another photographer in Queensland, but much further south in Mullaney actually found another population. So Super interesting. I, I don't know what's going on and why all of a sudden people are finding, well, at least two people have found this this genus, but I'm really, really curious to know more. And your pictures of bees are just like so remarkable. Can you tell me about like what goes into taking those photographs? Because I imagine you have an extremely good eye considering they are so small. Yeah, thanks. Uh I'll answer that last bit first. I, I, I used to have much better vision, but my eyes are deteriorating probably because I spend too much time writing papers at the computer. <laughs> so it's getting a little bit more difficult. Um, but you're not wrong. It is it is a, a difficult process. And of course, I have to start with going out and finding a bee. So often I'll be out um, with a butterfly net sweeping flowering plants. Once I find a bee that I actually want to take a photo of. Normally it's, there's something special about it. Maybe I think it's um, a genus that I haven't seen before, or it's just particularly pretty, um, or I just feel like taking some photos. So I need to actually take that bee home. And normally we I euthanize them. So I'll, I'll put them in the freezer for uh, probably 12 to 24 hours. And it's meant to be the humane way of killing them. But once I've done that, I'll take them out, let them defrost and warm up again. Um, I mount them on a pin. And then I, I start to take the photos. And the reason I have to do all of this is because um, it, it's something to do with macro photography where the closer you get to a subject, the smaller the depth of field is. So the less that's in focus. And the way that I normally explain this is if you imagine taking a photo of the horizon, you know, the horizon up to probably, I don't know, a few hundred meters in front of you will be all pretty nicely in focus. But if you get closer, you imagine like a portrait shot of someone's face and, you know, the iris might be in focus and the eyelashes are out of focus. This compounds and gets a lot worse as you move closer and closer. So basically, I need to take a whole bunch of photos through the bee from start to finish so that I can get the whole thing in focus. And then afterwards, I'll put all of those photos together into one. So the whole thing is in focus. And of course, if a bee moves during that process, then um, the image won't work out. Um, but yeah, from start to finish, it probably takes between one and three hours for each Whoa, photograph. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah, and, and a lot of that time is is post-processing. Um, and it also, I, I spend a lot of time post-processing while watching TV or movies or something like that because it's, you know, something you can do or all this into podcasts, depending on where I'm at. Um, yeah, so that's, that's why I've got a massive backlog of images and a whole bunch of unfinished images and part of why I haven't posted much lately <laughs> because it's just so, so time consuming and difficult to actually start and finish a photo. 
And one thing that I like the most about your photos is that, you know, like I've seen images of bees before, but these are just so up close. You can see like, you know, the fur on them and, and things like that. Do you think that um, your photos sort of have a, a bigger impact than I guess other photographs? Like, do you, have, do you, are you hoping that seeing bees this up close sort of does impact people? I, I absolutely do hope that seeing bees or any insect for that matter up, this up close will impact people and maybe make them care more or learn a little bit more about them. Um, I don't want to say that it's more impactful than other people's photos because that might be a bit vain and <laughs> True. Be <laughs> modest. Be modest. Um, yeah. And, and of course, there's there's the thing in my mind that I'm taking photos of a dead animal Um which is a bit strange to a lot of people. But yes, the, the idea is that, you know, you can euthanize a few animals and really bring their beauty to a whole bunch of people and hopefully then increase the conservation outcomes for those species. For me personally, I really like what I do. I, I do mostly this stuff, I think, for myself. I've been trying to figure that out, but <laughs> I really love being able to see the animals that I work on from a scientific perspective um, up close. And it really is like an, a landscape in miniature, as you say, all these hairs, um, different sculptures and patterns on their integument, um, incredible colors that you just wouldn't know were there if you looked with the naked eye. Um, yeah. And then of course you can print these photos out and make them huge and, and really get in and study them. I, I tend to, it's called pixel peeping when you really look closely at your photos uh, to look for blemishes or, in this case, details. Mm -hmm. And obviously on those expeditions that you did that were focused on, you know, exclusively photographing um, Australia's bees, obviously you would have, um, you would have seen a lot more Australian bees than anyone else. Which ones are your favourites? Oh, I get this question quite a lot. Um, it, it, it changes and it really depends on what I'm focusing on at the moment. So up until recently, of course, Farrah Hylaeus, the, the cloaked bee, mm -hmm. was probably my favourite um, with a close second of some of these low light bees that I was looking at on one of these field trips. So, um, for example, there's an incredible Meriglossa. It's a masked bee species that I've caught uh, foraging after the sunset. And it was like, basically, I couldn't see very well. Um, and another species in a different family as well doing the same thing. And they are both just incredible because they're so behaviorally strange, morphologically strange. Like they've got these massive eyes. So I, I'm kind of taken not just by how they look, but what they do. Mm. And I'm perhaps a bit of a tart in which ones I like most at the moment. <laughs> And with your book, Bees of Australia, a photographic exploration, how long and how much work did it take to put that together? Because that is such a large scale project. The simplest answer is it took me three years from start to finish. Um, so three and a half months driving around Australia, taking photos, a full year to a year and a half of editing those photos probably and choosing the ones that I wanted. Um, and then the rest of the time was kind of spent either writing parts or talking to people to get people to write the book. Cause I didn't write the whole thing. Um, I thought it was pretty important to get some of the knowledge from other scientists that are actually established in the field, particularly when I started writing this project, I just finished my undergrad. So I was a, a lowly undergraduate student. <laughs> 
Um, so I really wanted to get the opinion of other people and, and knowledge that maybe they hadn't written down in another format before, uh, give them a chance to put it on paper. Um, yeah, so it was it was a long project, but it was it was really nice and it really kickstarted the beginning of me learning about bees and getting more and more interested in them. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $39.99 and save 10% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I guess a lot of conservation work has been around honeybees or a lot of the conversations around extinction and what's happening with bees has been about like overseas species. I'm wondering how are Australian native bees faring against all of today's challenges? Good question, Angela. And I don't have a good answer for you because most of that work hasn't been done. You mentioned um, European honeybee and yes, that is an introduced species in Australia and a lot of people focus on it for, for conservation overseas and in Australia. Um, I don't, like the conservation side, particularly in places where it's not native like here or, or North America, for example, doesn't really carry any weight to it. Like there's no real reason to conserve an otherwise invasive species. But on the same token, I think it's driven a lot of interests um, in the public towards native bees as well that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, the European honeybee might be a um, threat to native bees, of course, because they compete for the same resources in a lot of cases. But there are lots of other things that we maybe don't haven't studied well enough. So you know, how is habitat destruction? Um, and fragmentation influence native bees? What about bushfires? What about invasive plants or disease or other invasive species? And the research really hasn't been done. And, and maybe it's because it's so daunting um, to start. But, you know, there are some people starting to do this kind of research. For example, there's a, a research group in Melbourne, actually, at Monash Uni, who's starting to look at um, how climate change might be impacting a native native bee species. That's really interesting. It'd be cool to find out um, how they go, but there's, there's so much more to learn. What do you think the world would look like without bees? I think probably a lot of people will be thinking back to that Einstein quote now, uh, you know, that we'd all die out without bees in a few years. But I think that the consensus is that quote isn't from Einstein. And once again, we probably don't know what the world would look like without bees. I mean, bees are probably the most important animal pollinators in the world, but they're definitely not the only animal pollinators. So, you know, most flying insects probably pollinate, you know, flying is pretty energy intensive. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, mammal or bird or lizard. There's a whole bunch of other animals that will go and pollinate plants so what will the world look like without bees i'm not sure probably a little bit different i i hope that things would evolve or change to fill that niche 
if it was suddenly vacated, but I'm not sure. There would be lots of extinctions, I imagine, of different plant species that rely entirely or primarily on, on bees. But, you know, ecosystems are complex. I'm not entirely sure, I'm afraid. <laughs> How can Australians sort of bring bees back to their backyards? Now, that's a lot easier. Uh, the best way to bring bees, and particularly native bees, back to your um, backyard is to plant native plants, right? So um, build it and they will come, they say, and that, that's probably the case. So, you know, planting things like eucalypts or melaleuca, tea tree, peas, um, whatever native plants you find in your area, um, maybe trying to get like regional cultivars. So I don't know how good some of the garden variety natives are. Like, you know, for example, I often find bees on grevilleas, um, but there's a cultivar or two that I find around Australia, but particularly on the East Coast, and I never find anything on it. And I don't know if it's because it's just not native to that area or because it's been changed somehow and it doesn't provision as well. But anyway, finding native plants from your area, planting them in your garden and encouraging other people to do so should have a pretty big impact locally. I mean, I, I find lots of bees in in towns, particularly like if you're in the outback um, and the town is surrounded by agriculture, you tend to find more in the town where people have planted and have been watering their gardens than you do in a, you know, sheep paddock. <laughs> Last question, sort of a weird one. Obviously, when people think about Australia's most dangerous animals, they think about snakes, funnel webs, or different varieties of spiders. Is it true that Australia's bees are actually our most dangerous animals, so to say? Oh, where have you heard that from? I don't know. I just feel like it got, the stat comes out every year. Bees kill more people than snakes. Oh, okay. Uh, potentially. I don't know about in Australia specifically, but that, that seems likely, I suppose. But, of course, they would they'll be talking about the European honeybee. Um, I don't know for a fact that anyone has ever died from a native bee sting. There are some kind of interesting to read early reports of um, some ground nesting lesioglossum, for example, killing people, but you read the papers and they're from, you know, the early 1900s or something like that or the mid 1900s. And they're pretty circumstantial. Like, you know, Joe Bloggs knows that when he gets stung by these bees, he has a bad reaction and then he was found dead with an anaphylactic shock um, and he was holding these random pills that he used to take when he got stung that he made he, he thought made him feel better so therefore he was killed by that bee but I don't know I don't know if anyone's ever died from a native bee sting in Australia actually I mean they're, they're, they're so diverse bees I mean I've been stung by a few now not that many and they're pretty variable in their and the strength of their sting, you know, some of them hurt a bit. I've heard that, for example, those lasioclossum really do pack a punch. Um, some of the mast bees apparently pack a punch, but I've mostly been stung by some of the smaller ones and you just get a little itchy spot <laughs> that goes away in a day or two. But I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know of anyone that's died from a native bee sting. And so that wasn't actually my last question. This is actually my last question. How smart are bees? I think the general consensus is that bees are pretty smart. <laughs> Again, a lot of the research has been done on overseas species, so the honeybee or bumblebees. 
Um, but I'm sure it, it's pretty um, transferable, particularly for the more social species. So, uh, you know, for example, they found that honeybees can learn people's faces. Um, they can learn to traverse mazes. Uh, you know, that kind of makes sense if they're trying to find um, resources in the environment. They can learn concepts even. So, for example, they've taught bees the concept of left and right. You know, you come up to an intersection and if there's a particular colour, you turn left and another colour, you turn right. And eventually you follow that rule and you'll find a honey reward. So it seems like they can learn a lot and probably more than most people give them credit for. And maybe a lot of the research has been done in bees because they're easy to manage. You know, if you have a European honey beehive or a bumblebee hive, you can do whatever you want with those. But a lot of other insects have done this similar kind of research. And for example, parasitic wasps, They've done a fair bit of this on and, and they can learn a lot as well. So it's pretty incredible what a tiny, 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 tiny little brain can do. Mm, that's amazing. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, James. No worries, Angela. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.